Section 14 of The Elements of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Elements of Geology by William Harmon Norton. Part 2 Internal Geological Agencies. Chapter 9 Movements of the Earth's Crust. The geological agencies which we have so far studied, weathering, streams, underground waters, glaciers, winds, and the ocean, all work upon the earth from without, and all are set in motion by an energy external to the earth, namely, the radiant energy of the sun. All, too, have a common tendency to reduce the inequalities of the earth's surface by leveling the lands and strewing their waste beneath the sea. But despite the unceasing efforts of these external agencies, they have not destroyed the continents, which still rear their broad plains and great plateaus and mountain ranges above the sea. Either, then, the earth is very young, and the agents of denudation have not yet had time to do their work, or they have been opposed successfully by other forces. We enter now upon a department of our science which treats of forces which work upon the earth from within, and increase the inequalities of its surface. It is they which uplift and recreate the lands which the agents of denudation are continually destroying. It is they which deepen the ocean bed and thus withdraw its waters from the shores. At times, also, these forces have aided in the destruction of the lands by gradually lowering them and bringing in the sea. Under the action of forces resident within the earth, the crust slowly rises or sinks. From time to time it has been folded and broken while vast quantities of molten rock have been pressed up into it from beneath and outpoured upon its surface. We shall take up these phenomena in the following chapters, which treat of upheavals and depressions of the crust, foldings and fractures of the crust, earthquakes, volcanoes, the interior conditions of the earth, mineral veins, and metamorphism. Oscillations of the Crust Of the various movements of the crust due to internal agencies, we will consider first those called oscillations, which lift or depress large areas so slowly that a long time is needed to produce perceptible changes of level, and which leave the strata in nearly their original horizontal attitude. These movements are most conspicuous along coasts, where they can be referred to in the datum plane of sea level. We will therefore take our first illustrations from rising and sinking shores. New Jersey Along the coast of New Jersey one may find awash at high tide ancient shell heaps, the remains of tribal feasts of aborigines. Meadows and old forest grounds, with the stumps still standing, are now overflowed by the sea, and fragments of their turf and wood are brought to shore by waves. Assuming that the sea level remains constant, it is clear that the New Jersey coast is now gradually sinking. The rate of submergence has been estimated at about two feet per century. On the other hand, the wide coastal plain of New Jersey is made of stratified sands and clays, which, as their marine fossils show, were outspread beneath the sea. Their present position above sea level proves that the land now subsiding emerged in the recent past. The coast of New Jersey is an example of the slow and tranquil oscillations of the Earth's unstable crust, now in progress along many shores. Some are emerging from the sea, some are sinking beneath it and no part of the land seems to have been exempt from these changes in the past. Evidences of Changes of Level Taking the surface of the sea as a level of reference, we may accept as proofs of relative upheaval 
whatever is now found in place above sea level, and could have been formed only at or beneath it. And as proofs of relative subsidence, whatever is now found beneath the sea, and could only have been formed above it. Thus old strand lines with sea cliffs, wave-cut rock benches, and beaches of wave-worn pebbles or sand, are striking proofs of recent emergence to the amount of their present height above tide. No less conclusive is the presence of sea-laid rocks which we may find in the neighboring quarry or outcrop, although it may have been long ages since they were lifted from the sea to form part of the dry land. Among common proofs of subsidence are roads and buildings and other works of man, and vegetal growths and deposits, such as forest grounds and peat beds, now submerged beneath the sea. In the deltas of many large rivers, such as the Po, the Nile, the Ganges, and the Mississippi, buried soils prove subsidences of hundreds of feet, and in several cases, as in the Mississippi Delta, the depression seems to be now in progress. Other proofs of the same movement are drowned landforms, which are modeled only in open air. Since rivers cannot cut their valleys farther below the base level of the sea than the depths of their channels, drowned valleys are among the plainest proofs of depression. To this class belong Narragansett, Delaware, Chesapeake, Mobile, and San Francisco Bays, and many other similar drowned valleys along the coasts of the United States. Less conspicuous are the submarine channels, which, as soundings show, extend from the mouths of a number of rivers some distance out to sea. Such is the submerged channel which reaches from New York Bay southeast to the edge of the continental shelf, and which is supposed to have been cut by the Hudson River when this part of the shelf was a coastal plain. Warping. In a region undergoing changes of level, the rate of movement commonly varies in different parts. Portions of an area may be rising or sinking, while adjacent portions are stationary or moving in the opposite direction. In this way, a land surface becomes warped. Thus, while Nova Scotia and New Brunswick are now rising from the level of the sea, Prince Edward Island and Cape Breton Island are sinking, and the sea now flows over the site of the famous old town of Louisbourg, destroyed in 1758. Since the close of the glacial epoch, the coasts of Newfoundland and Labrador have risen hundreds of feet, but the rate of emergence has not been uniform. The old strand line, which stands at 575 feet above tide at St. John's, Newfoundland, declines to 250 feet near the northern point of Labrador. The Great Lakes is now undergoing perceptible warping. Rivers enter the lakes from the south and west with sluggish currents and deep channels resembling the estuaries of drowned rivers, while those that enter from opposite directions are swift and shallow. At the western end of Lake Erie are found submerged caves containing stalactites, and old metals and forest grounds are now under water. It is thus seen that the water of the lakes is rising along their southwestern shores, while from their northeastern shores it is being withdrawn. The region of the Great Lakes is therefore warping. It is rising in the northeast as compared with the southwest. From old benchmarks and records of lake levels, it has been estimated that the rate of warping amounts to five inches a century for every 100 miles. It is calculated that the water of Lake Michigan is rising at Chicago at the rate of nine or ten inches per century. The divide at this point between the tributaries of the Mississippi and Lake Michigan is but eight feet above the mean stage of the lake. If the canting of the region continues at its present rate, in a thousand years the waters of the lake will here overflow the divide. In 3,500 years all the lakes except Ontario will discharge by this outlet, 
via the Illinois and Mississippi rivers into the Gulf of Mexico. The present outlet by the Niagara River will be left dry, and the divide between the St. Lawrence and the Mississippi systems will have shifted from Chicago to the vicinity of Buffalo. Physiographic Effects of Oscillations we have already mentioned several of the most important effects of movements of elevation and depression, such as their effects on rivers, the mantle of waste, and the forms of coasts. Movements of elevation, including uplifts by folding and fracture of the crust, to be noticed later, are the necessary conditions for erosion by whatever agent. They determine the various agencies which are to be chiefly concerned in the wear of any land, whether streams or glaciers, weathering or wind, and the degree of their efficiency. The lands must be uplifted before they can be eroded, and since they must be eroded before their waste can be deposited, movements of elevation are a prerequisite condition for sedimentation also. Subsidence is a necessary condition for deposits of great thickness, such as those of the Great Valley of California and the Indo-Gangetic Plain, page 101, the Mississippi Delta, page 109, and the still more important formations of the continental delta in gradually sinking troughs, page 183. It is not too much to say that the character and thickness of each formation of the stratified rocks depend primarily on these crustal movements. Along the Baltic coast of Sweden, benchmarks show that the sea is withdrawing from the land at a rate which, at the north, amounts to between three and four feet per century. Towards the south the rate decreases. South of Stockholm, until recent years, the sea has gained upon the land, and here in several seaboard towns, streets by the shore are still submerged. The rate of oscillation increases also from the coast inland. On the other hand, along the German coast of the Baltic, the only historic fluctuations of sea level are those which may be accounted for by variations due to changes in rainfall. In 1730, Celsius explained the changes of level of the Swedish coast as due to a lowering of the Baltic instead of to an elevation of the land. Are the facts just stated consistent with his theory? At the little town of Tadoussac, where the Sanguinet River empties into the St. Lawrence, there are terraces of old sea beaches, some almost as fresh as recent railway fills, the highest standing 230 feet above the river. Here the Sanguinet is 840 feet in depth, and the tide ebbs and flows far up its stream, was its channel cut to this depth by the river when the land was at its present height? What oscillations are here recorded, and to what amount? A few miles north of Naples, Italy, the ruins of an ancient Roman temple lie by the edge of the sea, on a narrow plain which is overlooked in the rear by an old sea-cliff, figure 166. Three marble pillars are still standing. For eleven feet above their bases, these columns are uninjured for to this height they were protected by an accumulation of volcanic ashes, but from eleven to nineteen feet they are closely pitted with the holes of boring marine mollusks. From these facts, trace the history of the oscillations of the region. Foldings of the Crust The oscillations which we have just described leave the strata not far from their original horizontal attitude. Figure 167 represents a region in which movements of a very different nature have taken place. Here, on either side of Valley V, we find outcrops of layers tilted at high angles. Sections along the ridge R show that it is composed of layers which slant inward from either side. In places the outcropping strata stand nearly on edge, and on the right of the valley they are quite overturned, 
a shale SH, has come to overlie a limestone LM, although the shale is the older rock, whose original position was beneath the limestone. It is not reasonable to suppose that these rocks were deposited in the attitude in which we find them now. We must believe that, like other stratified rocks, they are outspread in nearly level sheets upon the ocean floor. Since that time they must have been deformed. Layers of solid rock, several miles in thickness, have been crumpled and folded like soft wax in the hand, and a vast denudation has worn away the upper portions of the folds, in part represented in our section by dotted lines. Dip and Strike In districts where the strata have been disturbed, it is desirable to record their attitude. This is most easily done by taking the angle at which the strata are inclined and the compass direction in which they slant. It is also convenient to record the direction in which the outcrop of the strata trends across the country. The inclination of a bed of rocks to the horizontal is its dip. The amount of the dip is the angle made with a horizontal plane. The dip of a horizontal layer is zero, and that of a vertical layer is 90 degrees. The direction of the dip is taken with the compass. Thus a geologist's notebook in describing the attitude of outcropping strata contains many such entries as these. Dip 32 degrees north, or dip 8 degrees south, 20 degrees west, meaning in the latter case that the amount of the dip is 8 degrees and the direction of the dip bears 20 degrees west of south. The line of intersection of a layer with the horizontal plane is the strike. The strike always runs at right angles to the dip. Dip and strike may be illustrated by a book set aslant on a shelf. The dip is the acute angle made with the shelf by the side of the book while the strike is represented by a line running along the book's upper edge. If the dip is north or south, the strike runs east and west. Folded Structures An upfold, in which the strata dip away from a line drawn along the crest and called the axis of the fold, is known as an anticline. A downfold, where the strata dip from either side toward the axis of the trough, is called a syncline. There is sometimes seen a downward bend in horizontal or gently inclined strata by which they descend to a lower level. Such a single flexure is a monocline. Degrees of folding. Folds vary in degree from broad, low swells, which can hardly be detected, to the most highly contorted and complicated structures. In symmetric folds, the dips of the rocks on each side of the axis of the fold are equal. In unsymmetrical folds, one limb is steeper than the other, as in the anticline in figure 167. In overturned folds, one limb is inclined beyond the perpendicular. Fan folds have been so pinched that the original anticlines are left broader at the top than at the bottom. In folds where the compression has been great, the layers are often found thickened at the crest and thinned along the limbs. Where strong rocks such as heavy limestones are folded together with weak rocks such as shales, the strong rocks are often bent into great simple folds, while the weak rocks are minutely crumpled. Systems of Folds As a rule, folds occur in systems. Over the Appalachian Mountain Belt, for example, extending from northeastern Pennsylvania to northern Alabama and Georgia, the Earth's crust has been thrown into a series of parallel folds whose axes run from northeast to southwest. Figure 175 in Pennsylvania, one may count a score or more of these earth waves, some but from 10 to 20 miles in length, and some extending as much as 200 miles before they die away. On the eastern part of this belt, the folds are steeper and more numerous 
than on the western side. Cause and Conditions of Folding The sections which we have studied suggest that rocks are folded by lateral pressure. While a single, simple fold might be produced by a heave, a series of folds, including overturns, fan folds, and folds thickened on their crests at the expense of their limbs, could only be made in one way, by pressure from the side. Experiment has reproduced all forms of folds by subjecting to lateral thrust layers of plastic material such as wax. Vast as the force must have been which could fold the solid rocks of the crust as one may crumple the leaves of a magazine in the fingers, it is only under certain conditions that it could have produced the results which we see. Rocks are brittle, and it is only when under a heavy load and by great pressure slowly applied that they can thus be folded and bent instead of being crushed to pieces. Under these conditions, experiments prove that not only metals such as steel, but also brittle rocks such as marble, can be deformed and molded and made to flow like plastic clay. Zone of Flow, Zone of Flow and Fracture, and Zone of Fracture We may believe that at depths which must be reckoned in tens of thousands of feet, the load of overlying rocks is so great that rocks of all kinds yield by folding to lateral pressure, and flow instead of breaking. Indeed, at such profound depths and under such inconceivable weight, no cavity can form, and any fracture would be healed at once by the welding of grain to grain. At less depths there exists a zone where soft rocks fold and flow under stress, and hard rocks are fractured, while at and near the surface hard and soft rocks alike yield by fracture to strong pressure. Structures Developed in Compressed Rocks Deformed rocks show the effects of the stresses to which they have yielded, not only in the immense folds into which they have been thrown, but in their smallest parts as well. A hand specimen of slate, or even a particle under the microscope, may show plications similar in form and origin to the foldings which have produced ranges of mountains. A tiny flake of mica in the rocks of the Alps may be puckered by the same resistless forces which have folded miles of solid rock to form that lofty range. Slaty Cleavage Rocks which have yielded to pressure often split easily in a certain direction across the bedding plains. This cleavage is known as slaty cleavage since it is most perfectly developed in fine-grained homogeneous rocks such as slates which cleave to the thin smooth surface plates with which we are familiar in the slates used in roofing and for ciphering and blackboards. In coarse-grained rocks pressure develops more distant partings which separate the rocks into blocks. Slaty cleavage cannot be due to lamination, since it commonly crosses bedding planes at an angle, while these planes have been often well-nigh or quite obliterated. Examining slate with a microscope, we find that its cleavage is due to the grain of the rock. Its particles are flattened and lie with their broad faces in parallel planes, along which the rock naturally splits more easily than in any other direction. The irregular grains of the mud which has been altered to slate have been squeezed flat by a pressure exerted at right angles to the plane of cleavage. Cleavage is found only in folded rocks, and as we may see in figure 176, the strike of the cleavage runs parallel to the strike of the strata and the axis of the folds. The dip of the cleavage is generally steep, hence the pressure was nearly horizontal. The pressure which has acted at right angles to the cleavage, and to which it is due, is the same lateral pressure which has thrown the strata into folds. We find additional proof that slates have undergone compression at right angles to their cleavage 
in the fact that any inclusions in them, such as nodules and fossils, have been squeezed out of shape and have their long diameters lying in the planes of cleavage. That pressure is competent to cause cleavage is shown by experiment. Homogeneous material of fine grain, such as beeswax, when subjected to heavy pressure, cleaves at right angles to the direction of the compressing force. Rate of folding. All the facts known with regard to rock deformation agree that it is a secular process, taking place so slowly that, like the deepening of valleys by erosion, it escapes the notice of the inhabitants of the region. It is only under stresses slowly applied that rocks bend without breaking. The folds of some of the highest mountains have risen so gradually that strong, well-entrenched rivers, which had the right-of-way across the region, were able to hold to their courses, and as a circular saw cuts its way through the log which is steadily driven against it, so these rivers sawed their gorges through the fold, as fast as it rose beneath them. Streams which thus maintain the course which they had antecedent to a deformation of the region are known as antecedent streams. Examples of such are the Sutledge and other rivers of India, whose valleys trench the outer ranges of the Himalayas, and whose earlier river deposits have been upturned by the rising ridges. On the other hand, mountain crests are usually divides, parting the headwaters of different drainage systems. In these cases, the original streams of the region have been broken or destroyed by the uplift of the mountain mass across their paths. On the whole, which have worked more rapidly, processes of deformation or of denudation? Land forms due to folding. As folding goes on so slowly, it is never left to form surface features unmodified by the action of other agencies. An anticlinal fold is attacked by erosion as soon as it begins to rise above the original level, and the higher it is uplifted, and the stronger are its slopes, the faster is it worn away. Even while rising, a young upfold is often thus unroofed, and instead of appearing as a long, smooth, boat-shaped ridge, it commonly has had opened along the rocks of the axis, when these are weak, a valley which is overlooked by the infacing escarpments of the hard layers of the sides of the fold. Under long-continued erosion, anticlines may be degraded to valleys, while the synclines of the same system may be left in relief as ridges. Folded Mountains The vastness of the forces which wrinkle the crust is best realized in the presence of some lofty mountain range. All mountains, indeed, are not the result of folding. Some, as we shall see, are due to upwarps or to fractures of the crust. Some are piles of volcanic material. Some are swellings caused by the intrusion of molten matter beneath the surface. Some are the relics left after the long denudation of high plateaus. But most of the mountain ranges of the earth, and some of the greatest, such as the Alps and the Himalayas, were originally mountains of folding. The earth's crust has wrinkled into a fold, or into a series of folds, forming a series of parallel ridges and intervening valleys, or a number of folds have been mashed together into a vast upswelling of the crust, in which the layers have been so crumpled and twisted, overturned and crushed, that it is exceedingly difficult to make out the original structure. The close and intricate folds seen in great mountain ranges were formed, as we have seen, deep below the surface, within the zone of folding. Hence they may never have found expression in any individual surface features. As the result of these deformations deep underground, the surface was broadly lifted to mountain height, 
and the crumpled and twisted mountain structures are now to be seen only because erosion has swept away the heavy cover of surface rocks under whose load they were developed. When the structure of mountains has been deciphered, it is possible to estimate roughly the amount of horizontal compression which the region has suffered. If the strata of the folds of the Alps were smoothed out, they would occupy a belt seventy-four miles wider than that to which they have been compressed, or twice their present width. A section across the Appalachian folds in Pennsylvania shows a compression to about two-thirds the original width. The belt has been shortened thirty-five miles in every hundred. Considering the thickness of their strata, the compression which mountains have undergone accounts fully for their height, with enough to spare for all that has been lost by denudation. The Appalachian folds involve strata 30,000 feet in thickness. Assuming that the folded strata rested on an unyielding foundation, and that what was lost in width was gained in height, what elevation would the range have reached had not denudation worn it as it rose? THE LIFE HISTORY OF MOUNTAINS While the disturbance and uplift of mountain masses are due to deformation, their sculpture into ridges and peaks, valleys and deep ravines, and all the forms which meet the eye in mountain scenery, excepting in the very youngest ranges, is due solely to erosion. We may therefore classify mountains according to the degree to which they have been dissected. The juras are an example of the stage of early youth, in which the anticlines still persist as ridges, and the synclines coincide with the valleys. This they owe as much to the slight height of their uplift as to the recency of its date. The Alps were upheaved at various times, the last uplift being later than the uplift of the Juras, but to so much greater height that erosion has already advanced them well on towards maturity. The mountain mass has been cut to the core, revealing strange contortions of strata which could never have found expression at the surface. Sharp peaks, knife-edged crests, deep valleys with ungraded slopes subject to frequent landslides are all features of alpine scenery typical of a mountain range at this stage in its life history. They represent the survival of the hardest rocks and the strongest structures, and the destruction of the weaker in their long struggle for existence against the agents of erosion. Although miles of rock have been removed from such ranges as the Alps, we need not suppose that they ever stood much, if any, higher than at present. All this vast denudation may easily have been accomplished while their slow upheaval was going on, in several mountain ranges we have evidence that elevation has not yet ceased. Under long denudation mountains are subdued to the forms characteristic of old age. The lofty peaks and jagged crests of their earlier life are smoothed down to low domes and rounded crests. The southern Appalachians and portions of the Hartz Mountains in Germany are examples of mountains which have reached this stage. There are numerous regions of upland and plains in which the rocks are found to have the same structure that we have seen in folded mountains. They are tilted, crumpled, and overturned, and have clearly suffered intense compression. We may infer that their folds were once lifted to the height of mountains, and have since been wasted to low-lying lands. Such a section as that of figure 67 illustrates how ancient mountains may be leveled to their roots, and represents the final stage to which even the Alps and the Himalayas must some time arrive. Mountains, perhaps of alpine height, once stood about Lake Superior. A lofty range once extended from New England and New Jersey southwestward to Georgia, along the Piedmont Belt. In our study of historic geology, we shall see more clearly 
how short is the life of mountains, as the earth counts time, and how great ranges have been lifted, worn away, and again upheaved into a new cycle of erosion. THE SEDIMENTARY HISTORY OF FOLDED MOUNTAINS We may mention here some of the conditions which have commonly been antecedent to great foldings of the crust. 1. Mountain ranges are made of belts of enormously and exceptionally thick sediments. The strata of the Appalachians are 30,000 feet thick, while the same formations thin out to 5,000 feet in the Mississippi Valley. The folds of the Wasatch Mountains involve strata 30,000 feet thick, which thin to 2,000 feet in the region of the plains. 2. The sedimentary strata of which mountains are made are for the most part the shallow water deposits of continental deltas. Mountain ranges have been upfolded along the margins of continents. 3. Shallow water deposits of the immense thickness found in mountain ranges can be laid only in a gradually sinking area. A profound subsidence, often to be reckoned in tens of thousands of feet, precedes the upfolding of a mountain range. Thus, the history of mountains of folding is as follows. For long ages, the sea bottom off the coast of a continent slowly subsides, and the great trough, as fast as it forms, is filled with sediments, which at last come to be many thousands of feet thick. The downward movement finally ceases. A slow but resistless pressure sets in, and gradually, and with a long series of many intermittent movements, the vast mass of accumulated sediments is crumpled and uplifted into a mountain range. End of section 14